0: Two passages. It's going to be 2 Timothy chapter 3, and we're going to read from verse 16 all the way to chapter 4, verse 5. And also, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 21. 2 Timothy 3. In 2 Peter chapter 1, let me open us up with a word of prayer before we dive into this today. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful that in it are the words of life, and we have everything that we need in these words to be restored in relationship with you, to learn to know who you are and to trust you. And I pray that we would love your word, that we would cultivate our life by what we find in your word. And in any places in our life, we find that our lives don't match up with your word. I pray that we would repent and change. We love you. It's in your son's precious name that I pray. Amen. So this week, as we continue on in our Misconceptions About Christianity series, uh, this is our second to last uh, subject that we're going to address. And this subject is that the Bible cannot be trusted. And you'll find that there are... Many different reasons why people say that the Bible can't be trusted, but throughout my time in you know, Christian faith and time in my ministry, I found four primary reasons why people say that the Bible can't be trusted. The Bible can't be trusted because it was written by man. Right? The idea here is being that as a whole, humanity cannot be ultimately trusted, and therefore the Bible cannot be trusted to have been reliably written and reliably tell you how to live your life. The second is that the Bible can't be trusted because it's been translated numerous times so it's like the telephone game that you may have played as a a child or as a begrudging adult in a icebreaker at work or something like that. Um, This is where you tell one person something and they turn and tell that the person behind them what they think you said and then you keep that going down until you get to the very end. And at the very end, the person at the end says what they were told. And you see how that compares with what was said at the beginning. And most of the time, it's nowhere close to how it started, depending on how many ears and mouths it passed through. And so this goes with all the different translations that have occurred with the Bible for the last 2,000 years. It couldn't possibly be the same thing that actually happened when Jesus of Nazareth was alive. The third is that the Bible contains numerous errors and contradictions. Part of the problem with all these translations is that people make mistakes as they translate these things. And there's different things that contradict one another. So if it says this in one spot and says don't do this in another spot, then that's a contradiction. And if there's contradictions, it can't be trusted. And the last thing that people often say is that the Bible contains supernatural events and there's no such thing as the supernatural and therefore the Bible can't be trusted. And I'm sure there are many more arguments out there. People come up with stuff all the time, but I think generally one of these four are where most people are going to land if they're pushing back against the Bible. And my goal today is to address some of these issues. So at the very least, you can have ease in your mind that there are solid answers to every single one of these. If you would just do a little bit of uh, time studying the Word, if you do a little bit of time studying uh, church history, you would find that there are answers to every single one of these. And I've given you two resources that were hugely advantageous to me this week, which is at the bottom you see two YouTube videos. One was Why You Can Believe the Bible by Vody uh, Bacham, and Five Reasons You Can Trust Your Bible by J. Warner Wallace. I mean, these are, if you watch them both, you're about an hour and a half into this whole thing, but it was amazing, the information that they provide, and it was awesome. I would highly recommend that, um, but to start off, I want to look at what the Bible says about the Bible which is why we're going to 2 Timothy 3 and 2 Peter verse 1. So take a look with me at 2 Timothy 3. We're going to read that all the way from verse 14 uh, to verse 5 in chapter 4. It says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. You know those who taught you, and you know that from infancy you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and turn aside to myths. But as for you, exercise self-control in everything. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry." So in this passage, Paul tells Timothy that the Scriptures that he has grown up hearing from his mother and his grandmother, they are able to give him wisdom for salvation by faith in Christ. And that's the whole point of the Scriptures. The whole point. The Bible is a redemptive narrative that tells the story of God's creation of humanity in His image through Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve rebel against God by eating the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which he commanded them not to eat. And as a result of their rebellion, sin comes into the world, and God curses everything, and his relationship with man and woman are separated. And they live in a state of condemnation because of their sin. God promises that one day, one will come that will restore everything. That promise comes immediately in Genesis 3.15. There's one that will crush the head of the serpent even though his heel will be strike, stricken, struck, struck. Let's go struck, striked. Mm. And then what we see is in throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we have the story of God paving the way for this coming Messiah over the course of the next hundreds and hundreds of years. The New Testament Gospels point to the life of Christ who's come to reverse the curse that was caused by sin. He came to live the life that we were supposed to live. He died the death that we deserve. And he went to the cross and took on the entire wrath of God for anybody who will put their faith in him. And then in Acts, we see, see the story of that gospel message being taken out into the world. All right? And the epistles, which we've been going through before we started this, they're letters from the apostles to new churches. And there's like, hey, you've got this issue. You need to fix it with this. You've got this problem. Fix it with that. I love what you're doing here. Keep that up. You're doing a great job. Keep it going. And then Revelation gives us a great deal of prophecy about what we should expect towards the end and towards the second coming of Christ when he will come and he will take back the world restore everything to the way that it was supposed to be where there will be no more sin no more death no more strife no more mourning or crying or pain and everything will be as it was meant to be in the garden that's the story and it's one giant story and Paul says that it all has one purpose to give us wisdom for salvation That's the whole goal of the Bible, to let us know who God is and who we are and how to fix the problem that we have through Christ. That's it. Without Christ, we have no hope of being reconciled to the Father. And God knows that, and God tells us that over and over and over again in the words of the Scriptures. Paul says, if you will pay attention to the word, which is inspired by God, then you will have everything that you need for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that every single person who will call on the name of Christ will be equipped for every good work that the Lord has set before you. Everything you need is found in the scriptures. Everything that you need to do the ministry that you have been created for are in God's word. Does the Bible tell us everything that we need to know about everything? No. You know, we hear all the time, well, the science disproves the Bible. Science disproves the Bible. The Bible's not a science textbook. The Bible's not interested in, you know, how cells multiply and all this kind of nonsense. Like, that's not what the Bible's about. That's not the point. So we're not comparing apples to apples here when we compare these two. Does it give everything that we want to know about God and this earth and heaven and many other interesting things that come to our mind? No. It's infuriating in that. I want to know more. That's the reason why I'm excited for heaven where I have eternity to to be with Christ, to be in the presence of God. And I can just pick that endless, limitless brain forever. I cannot wait but it gives us enough it tells us everything that we need to know for our salvation and it does that incredibly well the problem that a lot of people face when it comes to the Bible is that due to our sin natures we don't want to be told what to do or how to do it and that includes God we don't want God to tell us what to do or how to do it in chapter of 2 Timothy, Paul presses Timothy to preach the word and be ready in season and out of season to correct, to rebuke, and encourage. So use the word to do the things that the word is made for. Why? Because people don't want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to hear what the Bible has to say in its proper context. That's why I keep saying it over and over again in these misconceptions. Almost all of them have to do with something being taken out of context. You, you pull it out of its context and you don't let the rest of the scriptures speak to that issue. You cherry pick what you want it to say and then you just scrap the rest. People don't want to hear that. They want people to tickle their ears and tell them that you can do whatever you want. You can live however you want. God loves you. He wants you to be happy. Does that sound familiar? Maybe that's one of those things that we addressed a few weeks ago. If you missed that, go check it out. And, and the reality is, is that God does want you to be happy, but as you pursue him, he wants you to find your happiness and your joy in him, not in your foolish, reckless heart that is constantly pursuing after things that will destroy you. He says in order to accomplish this, in order to find people that will tickle their ears, they turn away from the truth and they turn towards Myths. Like, I like that from the Bible. Maybe I can spin something out of that and make a religion out of that instead. We can see that this is true today. Most people, if they knew that the Bible was true, still would not bow the knee to Christ because they do not want to bow the knee to Christ. They don't want to live their life in the way that God commands. That doesn't feel good to me. That doesn't speak to my truth. They don't want that. So they turn their nose up to the scriptures. They create conflict where if you would just read it and maybe study a little bit about it, you would find that there is very little conflict to be had when you pursue the scriptures. So that's what Paul has to say. I also want to look at what Peter has to say. When we think about the scriptures, the nature of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1 verses 16 to 21, Peter here is defending against attacks against the authority of Scripture, which he, he believed that he and the other apostles were writing Scripture. In Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16-21, to 21, we see, For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power coming from our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to Him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased." We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We also have the prophetic word strongly confirmed and you will do well to pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you know this, no prophecy of scripture comes from the prophet's own interpretation because no prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Peter says here, what is being written in the New Testament isn't a myth. He says, they are eyewitnesses to the truth of it all, and they are writing in a time when other eyewitnesses were still alive to either corroborate what was said or to deny what was said. So these letters, the the letters of the New Testament that that are going out, people were alive then that could read that and go, that's not what happened. That's not true. But Peter says it's all true. We saw it happen and the people that were around us, even if they didn't follow Christ, know about the historicity of it all. Right? Maybe you don't believe about the supernatural aspects of it, but you like people who deny that Jesus of Nazareth even existed are ridiculous. There are more ancient texts that point to Jesus of Nazareth than point to Alexander the Great. And they're like, ah, he, didn't, he didn't exist. That's not even true. I'm like, Are you like that is just it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. It is ridiculous to think that Jesus didn't exist. There are so many texts, biblical and extra biblical, that point to the reality, the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? When the entire calendar starts changing its date because a dude existed. Maybe you should believe that he existed. I don't know. Peter says all of this is true people saw that it was true, at least the historicity of it all. And eventually, all the apostles, except for one, will give their life proclaiming this truth. All but one. Every apostle but John, the disciple that Jesus loved, died a martyr's death. And John, it wasn't for lack of trying. They tried to boil him in oil, history tells us, and he didn't die. And so they exiled him to the island of Patmos, every single one of them went to their death proclaiming the truth that we find in Scriptures. They were willing to die for it. I don't remember where I heard it before, but I saw somewhere where someone said that Watergate was the thing that helped them believe that what the gospel writers believed to be true because that was, what, 12 guys who couldn't keep a secret for like a week? And yet we're supposed to believe that these men... Lied about this, kept that secret for their entire lives, died a martyr's death, proclaiming that lie. And they did that for years and years and years. And they said, that makes me believe that it's true. Because in this case, 12 guys couldn't keep it secret for 12 hours or something like that. The disciples believed that what they had witnessed was worthy of speaking out upon up until the point of their death. That's one reason why we should believe the truthfulness of the New Testament. There was no benefit for them for saying what they were saying is true. There's no benefit to lying. The, the, in that cold case, the J. Warner Wallace video, he says, he used to be a cold case detective, so he would go in and look at cases that were 30 years old, had very little evidence, and he would go in and he had a pretty good history of making connections and and bringing people to justice on these 30-year-old cases and now he uses his talents to examine evidence to speak to the truthfulness of the Bible. He does a lot of apologetic conferences and stuff and he says that in his time as a detective he found only three reasons why people lie. Three reasons. They lie for money, they lie for power, and they lie for sexual relationships. He said if you chase all the clues back to it. one of those three things are going to be the reason why they have done what they did. None of this has come up for the narrative that is shared by the disciples. They didn't receive money, they didn't receive power, and they didn't receive any sexual relationships because of what they were teaching. The only thing that they received from this teaching was difficulty and persecution up to the point of their death. That's what they got for all their trouble. That's what they got for all their lies. No one's going to lie for that, not for that duration of time, not experiencing what they experienced. So they dealt with all of this and they never stopped sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We, we hear from, from history that Peter went all the way to, to the cross himself proclaiming these truths and then refused to be crucified standing upright because that's how Jesus died. He said, no, crucify me upside down. All the way to the point of the, one of the most brutal deaths ever created. Peter claimed this to be true. He said, I saw it. I will not deny it. Pastor and author Vadi Balcom used 2 Peter 1:16 to 16-21 to craft this quote about the Bible. It's on the back of your worship guide. You can see it as I read it. He says, the Bible is a reliable collection of historical documents Written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Those eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine rather than human in origin. That's a, that's a cool line there. I mean, it would be a good idea to memorize that and remember that. He says, it is a reliable collection of historical documents written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. Those eyewitnesses report supernatural events that took place in fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim their writings are divine rather than human in origin. They can look at what the Old Testament says, and they said that this was going to happen, and they said, we saw it happen. I watched that. And I'm not watching a YouTube video about it. I was there. I saw this happen. But how can we know that it's reliable? How can we trust that it's reliable? Let's look at some details, right? I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit here. I really enjoyed this week. This was good. Some of the details about the Bible will answer how we can know that this is reliable. The, The Bible was written on three different continents. It was written in Asia, it was written in Africa, and it was written in Europe, It was written in three different languages. You've got mainly Hebrew and Greek and then a little bit of Aramaic. It was written by 40 plus authors from different walks of life. You have kings, you have generals, you have fishermen, you have tax collectors, you have doctors, you have historians, and and many more. So it's not just one guy that heard from God and he wrote down everything that he heard and now you're just supposed to believe him and trust him that what he heard is true, that what he heard doesn't have any selfish motivation in that whatsoever. We don't have that. What we have is a library of books, of letters, of poetry, of proverbs, prophecy from 40-plus authors from different walks of life over a period of 1,500 years covering hundreds of topics, and yet they're telling one story. 66 books that tell one story. That one story in Genesis, we see at the very beginning, it says, be fruitful, fill, fill the word world with worshipers. That's it. That was the whole purpose. We see that at the very end of Genesis chapter 1. Be fruitful and multiply. multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Right? And things get out of control very quickly because of sin. God destroys everything through a worldwide flood. And then what's the first thing that he says to, Ab- or to Noah when he gets off the boat? Be fruitful and, more, and multiply. Fill the earth. And fast forward just a little bit It's at the tail end of the Gospel of Matthew. What do we see there? We see Jesus giving the Great Commission. What does he say? Go forth into the all nations, teaching people about uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, baptizing them, teach them everything that we need to know. Be fruitful and multiply. And then fast forward even more to the end. Book of Revelation, chapter 7, what do you see? People from all tribes, tongues, and nations worshiping around the throne of God. They were fruitful and they multiplied. It's one story pursued through 66 books. How many people would it take to make this story true? I mean, one person would have a hard time keeping one storyline together all the way through 66 books. We've got 40-plus over this length of time all telling the exact same story through three different languages. What would it take for that? It would take an act of God, which is what Peter said happened. They spoke through the direction of God. But not necessarily, though, right? It wouldn't necessarily take an act of God. Maybe it takes uh, an emperor with some monks, that changed everything, right? That's one of the conspiracy theories that are out there about the Bible. They believe that when the Roman Emperor Constantine came into power, that he had the Bible changed. We've got some problems with that. I wanna look at some of those problems. Now, we don't have the original documents, right? The stuff that they wrote all that on, disintegrated long ago, but what we do have are documents that date back to AD 120 which is within just a couple of decades of when all the gospel writers lived. And from that, we have different manuscripts of the complete New Testament. Of the New Testament, we have over 6,000 manuscripts or portions of manuscripts that date back as early as A.D. 120. Constantine ruled from 306 to 337 A.D., We have 6,000 manuscripts that date as early as 120 AD, so if things were changed, then you would have to find over 6,000 manuscripts. You would have to change them the exact same way. You would have to change them and not show that you changed anything in the document or people are gonna know that you're lying, meaning 200 years after the document was written that the ink would have to match, it would have to look the same, the writing would have to match, and you could never ever tell anybody what you did ever. Second layer of problems that come with this theory is the Great Commission, which the disciples took seriously. We talked about that. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, which I butchered just a second ago, Jesus said that the disciples were to take the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe everything that I have commanded you. And the disciples were obedient to this command. They took the gospel to people who spoke different languages and then within the first few centuries the Bible was translated into Syriac Coptic and Latin. So not only would you have to have these monks who were zealous to do what the emperor said change out 6,000 manuscripts that we know about there were probably more They would also have to learn how to speak and write Syriac, Coptic, and Latin so that those manuscripts, which were translated from Greek, would also match the Greek manuscripts. So all of that has to be changed. And then the same thing, you've got to keep in mind, the ink has to look the same, the writing style has to look the same, it all has to look the same or else someone's going to know that you lied because they can compare the manuscripts. And again, never tell anyone what you did third layer of problems with this theory comes from the early church fathers. The early church fathers often quoted and wrote commentaries on the New Testament. They did this so much that if all we had was their writings and their commentaries, we would be able to recreate 99% of the New Testament. And that's crazy. Vaughan Bachem said that there was 11 verses in the New Testament that, isn't, that aren't quoted by the early church fathers. 11 verses out of the entire New Testament. So here we go again. Not only do you have to change the 6,000 manuscripts, you also have to change the ones that were written in Syriac, Coptic, and Latin, and now you have to go find all of the writings of the early church fathers and change those so that they match. I mean, for people that don't believe in the supernatural, Right, It would take something supernatural to be able to do all of this and to do it in such a way that people didn't know you did it. No, the manuscripts that we have are good. And they are solid. And right? it would be a miracle if they were able to pull this off. So Constantine did not change the canon of Scripture. But then we get to the issue of translations, right? People say telephone game. Right. There's a there's an issue with using this as an example, because, correct, if I said something and told this person and that person told that person and that person told that person and that person told that person, person person, then, yes, we have a problem with that. If that's the way that the Bible is translated. That's not how the Bible has ever been translated. Right. Like we we work out of the CSB because it's close to, to word for word, but it's easy to read. I like it. Right. The CSB wasn't translated from the NIV. Right. The CSB was translated from the 6,000 manuscripts that we have on hand from the first century. When a new translation of the Bible occurs, they go back to the beginning and they start from there and they work their way forward till they have the translated Bible. So instead of it being me talking to this person and that person talking to that person, it would be me talking to them, talking to them, talking to them, talking to them, talking to them. And it would be like, hey, what did you hear? And yeah, they might have a few of the wording of it off, but they heard it from the source. That's how we translate the Bible. We're not taking. All right, well, this is the newest one. Let's look at that and see what it says. Well, I don't. That's not language we use today, so we'll mark that out and then we'll make it say this, based on my personal preference. No, they go back to the manuscripts, the original manuscripts, not the original manuscripts, but the the ones that we have, and they translate from that. And when they look at all these different pieces of paper, though, it says the same thing throughout all the years. So, what about the contradictions and the errors? I mean, is it without, completely without error? I mean, are you talking about a comma in the wrong spot? Maybe the word order is switched around just a little bit? Maybe. I mean, maybe. But there is not one contradiction in all of Scripture. There is not one error in all of Scripture that comes close to changing a major doctrine of Scripture. Right? Did the word that is supposed to be used in that was it woman or was it virgin right maybe maybe there's some confusion there but it doesn't change anything about the major doctrine of Scripture right? when you look at it how it fits in the rest of the story we see that the the doctrines are solid what about supernatural events supernatural things don't happen well, I hate to tell you something. They do. Um, we, we can look at prophe- prophecies in the Scriptures, prophecies that were written hundreds if not of years before Jesus was born, and we can see that this stuff came true hundreds or thousands of years before Jesus was born. For example, the two that I want to point out, there's many. There's many. I think there's like 300 prophecies that Jesus had to fulfill as the Messiah, and he filled all but a few of them, and that, that's just coming later, right? Like his return, that's a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. But I just want to look at two, two prophecies. Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 6 Says, who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should uh, desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. He was like someone people turned away from. He was despised, and we didn't value him. Yet he himself bore our sicknesses and he carried our pains. But we in turn regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. But he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. We all went astray like sheep. We all turned our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. The people that the Jews, the person the Jews were looking for was someone coming in on a war horse, that was going to conquer their enemies and take over whatever the situation was when he arrived. And in reality, what they should have been looking for was someone who was going to be crushed, someone who was going to be pierced, someone the Lord was going to pour his wrath out on for us. That was written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And then if you ever get curious about Another solid prophecy. Look at Psalm 22. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'm going to read a lot of it. Psalm 22, verses 1 to 18. It says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Those are the words that Jesus said from the cross. Why are you so far from my deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. By night, yet I have no rest. But you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Our ancestors trusted in you. They trusted and you rescued them. They cried to you and were set free. They trusted in you were not disgraced. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by people. Everyone who sees me mocks. They sneer. They shake their head. He relies on the Lord. Let him save him. Let the Lord rescue him since he takes pleasure in him. Also something that was said to Jesus while he was on the cross. It was you who brought me out of the womb, making me secure to my mother's breast. I was given over to you at birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Don't be far from me because distress is near and there's no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong ones of Bashan encircle me. They open their mouths against me, lions mauling and roaring. I am poured out like water and all my bones are disjointed. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength is dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You put me in the dust of death. For dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count. All my bones. People look. And they stare at me, they divided my garments among themselves, and they cast lots for my clothing. If you know anything about the crucifixion of Christ, we know that he was surrounded by people that were jeering at him. The two thieves on the cross beside him were jeering at him. It says he was poured out like water all my bones are disjointed. When you got crucified, they would often use the same cross beam that they would use over and over again, and so you had to fit the, the, the hole versus them making the hole fit to you. So if your arms weren't quite long enough, they pulled them until they were. So his arms were dislocated. It says, my heart is like wax melting within me. When they tried to make sure that he was dead, they ran the spear into his side, and blood and water came out as though his heart were melting says that his strength was dried up like baked clay. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Jesus said, I thirst from the cross is one of the things that he said. For dogs have surrounded me. That's often how Jews would relate to the Gentiles. They would call them dogs. They pierced my hands and my feet. You didn't always have to have your hands and your feet pierced to be crucified. A lot of times they would tie you to the cross and it would take longer for you to die but there was a high holy day that was coming up and they couldn't have any of these people still on the cross once that day came so they wanted them to die quickly it also says i can count all my bones so what they would do is if you didn't die fast enough they would because when you're crucified what you 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 basically suffocate to death and so to make it very agonizing, they would drive the nail through your feet and through your hands. And so you would have to pull up so you could breathe. And then when you couldn't stand the pain anymore, you would go back down and you would slowly asphyxiate. Well, sometimes that didn't go fast enough. And so they would shatter your shins so that you would just suffocate and die. And when they went to do that to Jesus, they saw that he had already died, which they were very surprised by. But he, he decided when he died. He told the Lord, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so his bones were never broken. And then when you look, you see that they were dividing Jesus' garments. They were gambling for his clothes so that they wouldn't have to tear the robe. This was written 1,000 years before the birth of Christ. This was written before crucifixion was ever envisioned. And yet, it is almost word for word exactly what happened to Jesus on the cross. Coincidence? I mean, that's a pretty solid coincidence there, if that's a coincidence. Do supernatural things happen? Yes, they do. They do. We see fulfilled prophecy after fulfilled prophecy throughout the words of Scripture. You have to turn a blind eye to it. You have to either... uh, Again, and I keep quoting them because y'all really do need to go watch these videos that I mentioned. Bodybockham says you have to either be completely ignorant or evil to deny the reliability of Scripture. There's, that's the only two options. So ignorant, you've never read it. You, all you rely on is other people to tell you what's in it. And so you start acting like a parrot. You just parrot what you've heard other people say. Right? It contains errors. Well, point one out to me. Well, I don't know. It just does. Right? It's unreliable. Right, Can't trust what it says. Well, there have been 25,000 archaeological digs that have taken place about biblical history and not one of them have ever disproved the Bible. 25,000 digs. Nothing has ever disproved the Bible. Do we have everything that happened in the life of Christ? No, we don't. John 21, 24, and 25 says that there are many other things that Jesus did, and if all of them were written down, the world itself would not be able to contain all that was written about Jesus. We don't have everything that was done. Do we have all that we need? Absolutely. 100% absolutely. So my question to you then, if this is true, if this is the word of God, and I'm saying that I believe it, what is your relationship with the Scriptures? Right? Would you state that you believe? no, nope, 100% inerrant, infallible, totally the Word of God, absolutely believe it. Do you read it regularly? Do you conform your life to what it says regularly? Or do you just go about your own way, you don't read it, you, again, just trust... You trust what I say. I don't want you to trust what I say at all. That's the reason why I put so much Bible out there. I want you to chase it down. I want you to see that what I'm saying is not my opinion. Don't trust me. Right? I am fallible. I am completely capable of chasing after the wrong path, going down and trying to tickle your ear so that you are happy with me. I'm fully capable of that. Not likely, but I, I, I can do it. So I want you to pursue after this. I want you to find a passion for God's Word. I want you to be able to laugh in the face nicely when people throw out these issues that they have with the Bible, the truthfulness, the reliability of the Bible. Right? Learn about this. Devour this. That's what we see in Psalm 119. You see, you see a man who is so passionate about the Word of God, the commands of God, that he's just like, oh, it's like honey on my lips. I love to taste it. What about you? What are your thoughts on it? Because if you believe the way that I believe, you should tra- treasure your time in the Word. If you believe as I believe, you should push every aspect of your life away as it comes up, Right. Sometimes it's a little overwhelming. Every now and then I read it and I'm like, I really, really am terrible this week. i got to work on some stuff. But what about you? Do you see it as God's Word? Do you see it as valuable? Do you make time for it in your life? Or is this it? Is this when you hear it or when you're scrolling through Facebook and you see you know, somebody post a Bible verse and you harp that and send it right on away? And we need to be people of the book. We need to be so deep in it that when we hear people say things that are ridiculous, either from a pulpit or from the world, that we can say, no, that is simply not true. And I can show you why. I want that for us. I want every one of us to be experts in the word. So let me pray towards that end. Father, we are grateful for your word. I'm so thankful. that when we want to hear from you, all we have to do is open the book. We don't have to wait for special revelation. We don't have to wait for some priest to speak down to us about what you have said. We don't, we don't have to. Jesus is our mediator, and we have everything that we need in these words, and I'm so thankful for it. It's my desire that we would be known as people of the book. that we would devour it in a way that shows our, our desire to know you and it shows our desire to be conformed to your will. We can't do that without the help of the Holy Spirit. Or change our hearts. Change us into people who have a passion for deeper relationship with you and for each other. Help us to have edifying conversation among each other so that we can the iron sharpening iron, we, we are constantly moving towards Christ-likeness in this church and in the relationships that we have outside of this church. And I ask us all in your son's precious holy name. Amen.